This is Shaka Wartspeak. Hey, welcome to Shaka Wartspeak. Happy to have you here this week. Um, as always, I'm Gareth Blackwell with my fantastic co-host, Ryan Leterio. Hello. Hi. <laughs> I'm on sugar withdrawal, so I, I, I gained too much, too much weight on COVID, so I can't fit in my clothes, so I had to... Do, so I'm foggy. So Gareth is gonna <laughs> Gareth is gonna be pulling me through this week. Well, I think it'll be good. I don't I don't think we'll have any problems with it. Uh, uh, we'll you see. know, we'll all that aside, out. because you know, uh, Ryan's uh, got some fantastic viewpoints on things. Um, but you know, speaking of COVID, a lot of uh, a lot of you have probably experienced, like most of us had, that a lot of opportunities have maybe fallen off the table. Right there were there were shows that Shaco Art Space was going to have that you know didn't get to happen because of uh, things that changed. Um, we have, uh, you know, personally, I've lost a ton of clients. Um, we've talked to folks that we know, uh, who have, uh, missed out on other shows or other things that they have. And our first space is to really stop and think about this as these are just huge insurmountable problems. Mm -hmm. But within a creative space, we always like to talk about the fact that problems should always be recontextualized as opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's new ways for us to look into, uh, new avenues or have new ideas or, or new thoughts on how things can go. And so what we want to talk about over the next uh, few episodes that we're doing is this idea of how do we actually navigate opportunity? Mm -hmm. Because it's always out there, and there's a lot of ways to think about it. I.e. problems. Yes. <laughs> so how do we navigate <laughs> but, yeah, opportunity, problems. opportunity? And this really came about because we had a question from a listener um, that Great listener. really was kind of asking a lot of stuff. So what, what, what are we actually kind of talking about, Ryan? Yeah, so we call them opportunities because they're problems and opportunities. <laughs> It's for opportunities because um, there's a lot of those right now. And, um, and so and just as an aside, too, we're really also working on a lot of content um, in, in support of um, what's happening right now in America and across the world. And um, so stay tuned. That, that also is in the works. We're working with different folks. And, you know, these are all issues that are after our own heart. So, um, just as an aside, I just want to, yeah, put really that excited out there. to let y'all know more about it. Yeah, them we'll let you know as more. Those start popping up. Yeah, those are, that's just a teaser, a teaser right mm. there. So, we have a listener, and I'm going to read. It's a pretty lengthy question because it's very thought out and very important, I think, to this person, and we value the question and respect the artist. So, um, it uh, says that they, oh, they've been thinking. So this is what they write. They have, I've, I've been thinking over the different types of work that I make, commissioned, client-based, house portraits, landscapes, and then they have versus personal work that I like to show in galleries. Um, some of the background of this question is that they've been busy outside the studio preparing for a show that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but instead, an opportunity has been presented to them to create anywhere from 10 to 40 paintings that will be hung in a permanent collection. Mm. But there is a commission aspect to these permanent um, uh, paintings. But this this artist is seeing the compromise as in this is a you know an honorable thing to have your work kind of in a permanent collection of ten oh, to yeah. forty pieces. But the work is not going to necessarily be the thing that they're most driven towards as an artist because there's a commission aspect to it. But then she's also seeing that this could be a, con a connection to other interested clients or patrons or art collectors. And so the question is, how do, how do you create a body of work for people that presumably want something more typical of a watercolorist instead of the kinds of things that she's been planning on painting, mm. um, which maybe are a little more um, atypical of, of what her skill set gives. And so she wants to, she says, I still want to imbue the, 
paintings with significance and meaning for themselves and for those purchasing them. And so then they just got into questions like what makes a, you know, uh, for a good body of work, uh, when, when you're working with client parameters, how do you make work that resonates with yourself and buyers? Any tips for improving the work conceptually, technically, et cetera. And so, um, lots of questions. There's more, even more questions, but that's kind of like the, the jumping off point is they're looking at a myriad of possibilities here that are actually really presenting themselves. Right. Yeah. So, that, that's a ton of stuff right there. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, is, uh, this, uh, this question, uh, when you were telling me about it the other day, uh, I was like, wow, that that's a question I feel like resonates with so many people. Right. Uh, because one of the things that's at the heart of a lot of discussions about, uh, relationship dynamics within creative spheres is, uh, questions that, sometimes come across as like who has control Mm -hmm. me or the buyer yeah Uh, who gets to have final say over what this looks like who gets to dictate right there's a lot of discussions and talks in that way so i think this is a really helpful thing to talk about but also um you know i come from the design side of things you're a painter so Mm -hmm. we have uh different views on things so some of the categories we're going to talk about today i don't have a whole lot of experience with right and you know the same might be true vice versa um, so, uh, really, I think the best way we can really start talking about this is this question deals largely in relationship, relationship mm-hmm. to work and relationship to the person on the other side of the, for lack of a better term, transaction. Right. So, uh, we've got four things we really want to deal with today, which are just first laying the groundwork for what a lot of the typical relationships are, what mm-hmm. the expectations or the structure how we understand them because we might not all have the same vocabulary or work within these same categories. So they are client, collector, donor, and patron. Mm -hmm. So where, where do you want to jump off with that, Ryan? Client, collector, donor, patron. And then I guess maybe monkey wrench would be just to say commission. Yeah. Just that, that. So how does that, how does that work? in tandem to those different categories, does it? And so like that might help us put those categories in motion. Hmm. Um, so say it again, client, collector, collector, donor and patron, donor and patron. So, yeah. So I think, I think, um, what's interesting is a person can be all of those Yeah. regarding different work, regarding different seasons of their life. And so you're not putting people into hard categories, but they are relational dynamics that, um, as they're occurring, um, are helpful to understand. So what I mean by that is you, when you're dealing with someone at face value, who is, um, a client, a client is a contact, a a relational entry point, and it can maintain as such, or it can change over time. Right. Right. So those are just things to sort of like put into the back of this because a client can become personally interested in such a way that they become a collector Hmm. and, and they start to collect to the point that they become a patron. Yeah. And out of their patronage, they commission you to make work uh, that is of a personal nature according to what you do. And so you can see how degrees of connection, connectivity and interest and, you know, thing, happenstance, things that, things that charge a relationship between a maker and a, uh, someone in, in one of these categories um, can develop them in different di- along different lines, different paths. No, that makes total sense. So it, it sounds almost like you're saying that with, um, with these, these four or five categories that we're dealing with, um, 
maybe we push too heavily into looking to understand them or define them as discrete yeah. points instead of looking at them as as having a, a measure of fluidity yep. between them. Um, yeah, because I, yeah. I look at I look at them as like doors. So you know, they're entry points in. In some, you know, you could have someone who works strictly. Now, this question is along the lines of someone that maybe is operating in two zones hypothetically, mm-hmm. which is a fine artist. Um, which tends to have um, some leanings towards the uh, the reproducibility of work, mm-hmm. selling additions. I mean, there's a um, more of a clear path of understanding that I'm making this work um, to live with people and to make a reasonable income, mm-hmm. um, which isn't which is great. You know, there's no diminishment there in my mind. Th- there is sometimes in the history of art like you don't you don't see a lot of uh fine artists commissioned artists uh, don't tend to get talked about like an art school per se right um but that might be a problem you know i don't know um uh so then what happens is the other side is like i want to make personal work Mm -hmm. that you know is not along this line that i can show in galleries and so um Part of the uh, part of the challenge or the problem mm-hmm. or the opportunity <laughs> is um, the way in which those things are um, uh, pitted against each other. Okay. The way that so what I'm saying is like the idea that it's sort of like in the prior categories of like contemporary artists, personal in nature, like you know um, making work for myself. Um, and then fine artist, you know, making work for myself, but doing things in a way that um, is satisfying and repeatable mm-hmm. and um, therefore knowable and um, uh, commodifiable in a reasonable sense. Like you can you can kind of really put a price tag on it and understand that unit and, and talk about it in those terms. And um of course, you can do it in the other direction, but the idea the, the idea is that that's being split up, and maybe that has to be understood as more fluid too. Yeah, <clears throat> you know. So, I mean, I guess I'm just trying to say, like, right from the start, the the problem is the ground uh, for which the maker is standing on, mm-hmm. and it's more of a navigating these opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the thing that stands out in my mind, coming from the design side of things, right, uh, I'm still relatively new to this idea that, like, fine art and contemporary art are not interchangeable terms, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the nuances of that are not something that come across on the design side of things. Right. Because we, um, in some ways, the design side of things can be very much labeled, like, one-sided, right? It's a client relationship. Like, that's kind of it. So right. we don't have that designation necessarily you're seeing it more and more come up in art schools now yep. where there is a contemporary art side of design um but when i like when i hear this just as the designer i think to myself but even in contemporary art like you're supposing somebody on the other end of that because uh you want the gallery show mm-hmm. which which assumes an audience to some extent yeah it's it's a weird it's so it assumes an audience and uh depending on kind of depending on the Depending on you, the maker, and the gallery's kind of conceptual framework and curatorial scope, there's levels of freedom and or demands to be outside the box 
so like, you know, when you're on one side of the coin looking over to the other, you see and go, wow, they really do progressive work. But when you're in that gallery, that's the only work that's allowed. That's their parameters. So is it almost like uh, maybe from the fine art side of things, uh, you assume an audience that is already there, but with contemporary art, you're pushing towards an audience that you're creating? Yeah, or that the gallery's created. Okay. That the gallery's created like in some kind of partnership or some kind of loose connection. So you're, you're, you know, I think a lot of artists, gosh, I mean, I, I'm trying to think about myself in, especially in grad school, like those were like these weird formative things for a lot of contemporary arts in America. Um, you're reading our history, you're looking at you're reading critical theory, you're like constantly glancing, you know, glancing at, looking at what, sh- who's showing. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing what galleries show what. So you're, you're, you're drinking down their curatorial aims and, um, whether you know it or not, I mean, that's having an influence on, on who you're going to show with or right. where you'd like to show. Mm-hmm. And so as you're doing that, you're reading who writes about the artists that show at that space. And you start to hunt those things down. You've entered into a kind of cultural milieu that is, you know, um, you know, like it's a lower Manhattan or, right. you know, Chelsea district, yeah. you know, uh, Lurig Augustine or some, some kind of gallery that has a very particular uh, uh, people. And so you know, as you get folks telling you, affirming what you're doing, they start to align you with one gallery or another. You know, like when I started to make more work, I started to get attention from particular galleries, um, not by accident. Um, so, um, you know, I was making like kind of clunky sculptures in grad school and post the uh, director from Postmasters Gallery in New York was interested in showing some of my work. And there was an obvious alignment kind of like a general sort of attitude, material attitude, conceptual attitude. I was at the right institution. It wasn't by accident that they were doing studio visits at VCU. You see a lot of things were aligning themselves to create the framework for me to like target towards that, that gallery. Right. And so um, with that, I'm assuming the audience that already is preexistent there, right? And there has to be an audience there because the gallery couldn't exist for that long without one. And someone in that, in there is patroning and, and uh, functioning at times as clients because you'll have uh, work that's placed in, in more permanent institutions and then you'll have uh, work that's placed in private collections from collectors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, you know, there's just different veneers on it in yeah. a way. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's, um, there's uh, cultural signifiers and value established for some that's not established for others. You know, so um, it's pretty diverse, man. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm muddling it more than I'm clarifying it right now. But just kind of trying to think about, like, honestly walk through the fact that there isn't a door that doesn't walk you through. If you're going to be a culture maker of some kind, you are going to bump into these possibilities. Oh, yeah. So there isn't a door that precludes that, even if you act like these two are very different. Because, you know, like the thing is like, so I mean, the, ter- the, the terrible other, other side of it's like when you go, you know, I remember the 90s or early 2000s going into the mall and seeing like the, the Kincaid Gallery. Yeah. Nobody wants, somebody wants to be that. But when you're in art school, you assume that there's a way in which art school assumes that that's everybody. Mm-hmm. And so in that space, you say nobody wants to be that. The problem with that is there's a lot of people that do. I don't mean that that's a problem. I mean, the problem is the world's more diverse than that. So right. somebody wants to be 
showing in that kind of way. And, you know, it brings up all these issues of kitsch and is it shallow? Is it, and those are big discussions, but, um, at a practical level, like people are free to do what they want to do. We don't want to hinder someone from, from making the way that they want to make. And so it bumps across these deep held convictions that are not very, very well stated, but they're the thing that creates the crisis when you're like, I want to make personal work and I want to show, um, and I've got this opportunity where I don't feel like I'm going to be able to have as much personal voice in what I do because it needs to appease the commissioner, you know, the one commissioning. Well, the, the, the question that keeps popping in my head as you're talking about this is kind of the question of have we created like a like a false problem of sorts? Yeah. Uh, where because so the, the the more pointy question to that is within these two categories that you're kind of uh, you know sort of fleshing out. Is there any point in either of those categories where you've really lost control of the wheel? No, I mean you're just. I think you're. Um, so the way I so I would have answered these questions very in a very different way 10 years ago, um, mm-hmm. maybe even five or six years ago. Where I'm at today, so I mean, this might change again, you know, um, is I, I, I just either will do it or I won't. Mm-hmm. And I have a field of vision for what I'm doing and how it fits in. And so there's outer edges to that. There's like borders to that. Like there's, a, there's thresholds, right? And so what I'm looking for is, is what I'm being offered going to cross over that threshold too hard um, in, in a way that compromises the field of vision that I'm working towards or that I'm, I'm building? And so um, if the answer is no, then I weigh timing and, you know, other, other issues. What else is occupying my time right now? Can I, can I pull this off? So what do I, you know, what do I mean by this? Well, um, if... I have a chance to show in a space with some artists and I feel like the space is pretty good. I'm probably going to take that, that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, if while that opportunity is popping up, I'm curating a show, probably take that opportunity. If a corporate collector is looking at some of my work and interested in it because a sort of a liaison contractor comes through, which has happened before, I'm interested in that. So see, right now, everything is kind of like um, if a kind of underground local gallery it wants to throw my work in with some other kind of sort of um, up-and-coming folks, um, depending on how savvy they are, I'm saying yes to that. So this is all happening. Let's pretend this is all happening now, right? So I'm mm-hmm. sa- so far, I'm saying yes to things. And the why, of, why I'm saying yes is because in every one of those places, people track. And I, I care about people, and I want the work to resonate people where they're at. And so far, none of those things are really um, rubbing against my core vision. Now, if a up, okay, so this is going to be where I, I maybe, this is just personal vision. I'm not talking about what anyone else can do. I, I, and I don't even have a judgment on what anybody else can do. But if, if a very kind of naive coffee shop says, hey, we'd like to hang some art and they don't know why or it's not a they don't have a vision i'm not doing that mm. because i'm not i'm not going to enable their lack of vision mm. um there's other artists that are at the same they're equally yoked to the gallery, to the coffee shop that sees that 
as an important step for them. And so they're, they're a better dance partner. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, because yeah, I, yeah. I've been, I've just been making too long. Like my work is, is, um, and I don't, that's not, see, that's the thing is like, that's not elitist. That's just saying that I'm not the best fit and that's not the best fit for me at this point in my life. Like I'm, I'm going to say no to that. And I say no to a lot of opportunities. So I'll give you another example. You know, I, I teach drawing, you know, so I'm known for that. And, and, you know, I used to do a lot of commission work when I was in high school and just out of high school. Um, I've said no to 99% of anything anybody's asked me to do that is predicated on 25 years ago. Yeah. I still get asked to do stuff 25 years later. <laughs> so because it doesn't, just doesn't fit into my vision, but it also doesn't fit into my time. So I don't have the time to make these crafted drawings apart from everything else that I'm doing with the gallery. And it, it just, it doesn't stack up anymore for me. And that's just okay. It's not a judgment on them or that work. It's just to say that I have moved in such a way that I'm no longer there. And so I can't afford that, you know? Um, and so, yeah, like now I say all that and then I, there might be like a coffee shop in Berlin five years from now and they've got a really interesting program vision and they're just getting started, but they've got a really clear vision and it makes sense why they're asking me. They, they, like they're thinking about me as a maker and vice versa. It fits into some kind of vision. I might say yes to that, even though I never show a coffee shops or I'm just, and I'm yeah, not yeah. judging coffee shops. I'm just trying to give a, a, a very honest. So it's like my ears are always open and I'm going to assess the opportunity against whatever else it is that I'm doing. And I'm going to like, let that play out. Now, here, here's one. If someone commissions me to make a painting, I'm going to try to see if they just want something I've already made first. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to be commissioned to paint dogs. Yeah. Or portraits or like, I just, I'm not there. I don't play that kind of music anymore. Therefore, I can't afford to give my time to those things. It's, it's um, you know, it's just not what I do. But I know I have friends that do do that and they're really successful and I'm excited for them and I believe in the value of their work. It's just me dis discerning for myself. Now, if someone is like, I like these three paintings, but they're not available and I love something that, that has that feel, I tend to say no to that, but it's not a total no. I'd be open. Yeah. But that's a very rare thing because I'm going to make the work that I make. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the point is, wherever you're at in the nature of the work that you do, um, sets up, a, I think, a parameter where you want to get a clear field of vision and you want to see where either ors are solved by the scope of the vision. In other words, the horizon is so big, uh, the either or is foolish. doesn't seem to make sense anymore. So um, I... I if I'm looking at myself as a more realist watercolorist with high, high definition, high detail, um, uh, I'm saying yes to the uh, 10 to 40 paintings because the uh, opportunity of a permanent existence somewhere has enduring value that supersedes the percentage that I might call my personal voice in my mind, in my thinking. Like I'm like, okay, that's really interesting. Like, this is so hyper unique that um, I'm going to deal with the apparent compromises. And then I'm going to put myself into that frame to where it is viewed with, with me. Yeah. You see, it's a sense. mindset. It's a yeah. mindset to say, okay, I'm not going to look at this as a cheap opportunity. It's a, it's a serious engagement. 
And there's a bit of a mold that I have to press my voice through. But the nature of uh, what that mold uh, does in every direction is something that is hard to come by and has a, has a unique opportunity for people to know about my work for many years to come. And so when I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about a body of work that exists even past my lifetime and mm-hmm. serves as a large point back to all the other work that I'm doing. Yeah, They're I mean, mutually that, supportive. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so it's, it's almost like within, within especially these couple categories we're talking about, um, it, it's not your like personal vision as the creative person behind it um, is very important. Yeah, but can take a slight back seat mm-hmm. at times. Yeah, uh, in pursuit of the trajectory of how your work can actually live beyond you. So or, don't. Yeah. So let me say, don't miss this. You you're raising the you're putting the nail on the head that I'm trying to say. I guess and you just said it more clearly. You're helping me. Personal vision isn't case by case in the actual work of art. Personal vision or vision period uh, is best to strive after prior to ever making anything. That way, the things you make fit into that vision or don't. Right. When that's not established, everything becomes a detrimental possibility case by case to the point that you can't just like see it fitting into your, your real world vision. So your real world vision uh, um, then is bigger than the vision of any one piece you make. Mm-hmm. If that's inverted, you won't be able to make work. You'll be paralyzed in things will seem too costly when pitted against each other because you're always dealing with your personal vision, which is only realized when it's a made thing. And what I'm saying is vision should come before the made thing. It's yeah, a field we, of vision. We it's, always have that experience. I mean, like if, if we want to push the point of uh, a vision as like prior vision, uh, talking about things like idealism versus realism. Yeah. I mean, you, you take any idea, any creative thing that you're doing, uh, it will necessarily at times change because it brushes up with a physical reality yeah. of just the materials you're using, yeah. right? Your materials are going to do things to you. They're going to change your mind. As you see things come together, things might change and morph. Uh, so why would we assume any less with a mm-hmm. human relationship? When mm-hmm. we have somebody who has a, a large sense of autonomy outside mm-hmm. of ourselves more than the, the, the stagnant materials that we're working with and, and making malleable, why wouldn't it be even more so That's right. that that be the case with yeah. people? Yeah. And so what, what makes a good body of work? Well, I would, um, I might completely disagree with myself tomorrow. Um, I'm feeling a little apprehensive, but I would eliminate good is, is needs to be broadened. You know, I, it, like I've used the example of like, um, uh, sort of Richter scales or mm-hmm. meters or, you know, it's like I've said it to students, like if a, um, okay, so what makes an earthquake, right? Well, certain tectonic shifts, ground shakes, some geological, whatever changes, right? Like whatever. Right. So, um, but the, what is not in that description is the impact. So um, you can have an earthquake that only seismologists can detect with special equipment. No one feels it. No one's impacted by it. Right. Is it, is it an earthquake? Yes. Totally. So, so substitute earthquake with good. Mm. Um, so is it good? Yes. But only experts can detect it. Yeah. Which is fine. Um, 
I mean, people that are really, really able to like see it and talk about it. And, um, and then there's earthquakes that shake and a few people go, would well, you feel that? And then, you know, it lasts for a few minutes. And so of course, both the experts and a few others felt it. And then there's some that, um, shake a town and the town is buzzing about it. Mm-hmm. So all of those people are hearing it. Then there are some that are like meter making historic and it's being talked about across the globe or whatever, right? And everything in between. And then there's some that are so significant that they're written about in history books, mm-hmm. like the great earthquake of 1912 in San Francisco or something like that, right? Yeah. And you keep being taught it because the impact was so large that it changed the ripple effects, changed um, life around it. Now I'm using a example of, of more of a destructive force, but it's just to say that there's a correlation between uh, the levels of goodness or mm-hmm. impact and and the time frame that that's used to feel the impact. Right. You see, so um, talking about bodies of work, um, the for the artist, the good part should be an afterthought. You should be driven by the interiority of the specific vision you have for this set of work as it relates to your larger vision. And you trust the process of committing to the various possible outcomes that will follow. You don't hedge your bets. You go in on the work. You make the work. And good is often felt by other people, like earthquakes. Mm -hmm. Other people say it's good. You may not like it, which will not stop other people from saying it's good. You may change your mind a year later. So the good part is not helpful for you in a lot of ways for us. We, 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 what I mean by that is like the impact is in the hands of the culture at large. And, you know, like when I tell students, it's just like some things are good because it's the first thing you've done and it satisfies a forward momentum step in, in accomplishing some, some dynamism, like you're getting going. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a work sneaks out of the classroom into the hallway of, of a art school and it gets hung up and you're like, whoa, some, you know, sometimes that happens, which has happened before. And then a collector comes by and goes, I want to buy that. Then you're like, whoa. And then sometimes that happens. And then the show get the work gets juried into a gallery and then it wins an award and then someone buys it. And now you're known by someone in New York who then says, Hey, would you like to do a show? See, so you can't know those things ahead of making the work. So it's better to not worry about that. It's better to make the work and let it live with the best of your intentions and the best of your stewardship and the best of your cultivative vision. And then you make peace with it and you let people have their response because people are free to respond. Yeah. Um, So good is an afterthought, best expressed by other people. When you make a meal for someone, it's better for someone else to tell you it tastes good than for you to think it tastes good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, so we get this in other places and you, you kind of, you know, the, the, uh, anxiousness, like, is it, is it, is it good? Is it, what do you think? And we've all made things where you really want your family to go, what do you think? Especially if you think it's good. Mm -hmm. So there is the thing where you're like, I think this is going to be pretty good, but you don't think that until it's done. Even you don't still have that response until it's done or close to, right? Yeah. So what I'm saying is not like we don't acknowledge that. It's just that, I think we should keep those kinds of concerns at bay. I think that's fair. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, cause I think about that with, um, 
like I'm trying to kind of contextualize everything you're saying on the design side of things, mm-hmm. right? Because our like our our terminology on the design side would be much more client based in right. a lot of ways, right? Right. And, and I'm not trying to, you know, uh, exclude like anybody who's doing design work that is gallery based and things mm-hmm. like that. But I'm saying largely historically, as we've understood it, mm-hmm. these are two different sides of a coin. Um, and so, you know, from the client side of things, um, it, the, the, if my first question is, is this good? It means that I would have skipped past the question of, is this, you know, accomplishing this goal or is mm-hmm. it doing this thing or is it operating in this way? It would skip past that. It would be, uh, providing a little bit too much, uh, oomph to a question that didn't need to have that yet. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, also it seems like, you know, you, uh, if I'm, if I'm growing food in a garden, I'm not thinking about like, oh, will this will this make the best dish down the road? Mm-hmm. That's what kind of asking the question good too early feels like. That's right. Where it's like, well, let's let's actually get the stuff there first, mm-hmm. so we have something to actually build parameters around to say, yeah. is it good or is it yeah. not? And so good in the client client. So is this work good in the sense of a client? Um, probably has something to do with a prior set of conditions and prompts oh, yeah. and requests from the client that are formalized. And even with a contract, uh, there's a, an agreement up front. Mm-hmm. I need these things. And I'm, uh, can you live up to this agreement? And then the artist says, yes, I can live up to this agreement. And then that's satisfied. Right. Um, and therefore set aside. And then it's the, art, the, the job of the maker to honor that contractual agreement with the client. Yeah, because, I mean, within design, we very much, uh, like, we thrive off of parameters and constraints That's and right. things like that. It actually yep. helps us make better work. Yep. So if somebody just says, hey, just go out and make the best poster you can, well, yeah. I'll never make that. No. I will never, yeah. and anything I make yeah. is going to be total trash. Right. Which is why, you know. Um, Which is possibly not a good client. Right, because you want those parameters, you want those guidelines, yep. because, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, as artists, uh, designers, creators, whatever we consider ourselves, makers, whatever, um, I, I think a large part of what we do is we are able to apply with skill a set of abilities in ways that make people open their eyes or understand yeah. something or have a connection or start a conversation. Yeah. And that's a very broad, vague kind of description. Correct. But um, it is something I feel that's somewhat unifying across all the creative spaces. Um and so if we think of it that way, then, then even as a, even as a painter, like those parameters shouldn't be something that we look at and go, oh no, you're limiting me. Mm-hmm. They should be looked at and say, oh no, this is like game on. This is the opportunity. Yeah. This provides me an opportunity to see how does my work fit well into this different shape container? Yeah. How do I actually make my vision uh, for what I'm doing big enough that it can do this over here and still do this over here? Right. And that's, uh, I think that, that makes... Those are the types of folks that you start to see when people talk about, oh, like they're, you know, they're, they're churning out amazing work left and right. Their body of work is like diverse, but also singular. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear those sort of things talked about. And I don't think it happens because we get to always be in the driver's seat. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, there's, there's the people that just kind of run through all these categories and they're just, they're impervious to it. They just kind of like make, and then for them, it's just an easy yes across the board. You know, they, they're, they're gifted that way. It's kind of remarkable. I can think of some people at the top of my head. Some people solve this problem by having a surname, you know, so you have like, you know, Mm, um, a a helpful distinction between four, four onlookers to understand like, this is my commission work. This is, this is where personal and I kind of 
either I use my initials for one or, and you know, those like two websites or, you know, these things are subtle distinctions that can be very helpful, even if it's just to help the artist conceptualize, like, and create some distance. And I can imagine doing something like that at different times in my life where I've thought about it. Like, I think it can be helpful as a uh, constraint to help me focus in on what I'm doing and where, because there tends to be a lot of bleed if I don't have, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, but the, the commission work, you know, so the thing about the client, the client, you know, I think there's also a professional setting that the work is, there's a professional public facing task of some kind and maybe that the work is going to have to bear up for possibly an, ex, uh, a, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's overlap between like that and commissioning. I'm commissioning you. It's like, 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 um, you know, if you're an illustrator, you may, you, you have, you, you may be working with clients, uh, uh, sort of off and on for the rest of your life. Right. But if you're, your commission, sometimes commissions are like one off, mm-hmm. um, projects. It could, it could be a mural somewhere. It could be a painting in someone's house. You could be commissioned to make, you know, I, I remember I needed about 400 bucks. I know it's 300 bucks, 200 and, 95 bucks, something like that for art supplies. And some lady commissioned, randomly commissioned me to make a, this was many years ago, but uh, she's like, I need someone to make like an eight foot painting on unstretched canvas of a palm tree, an island, and happy 50th birthday to my husband in blue letters. And and then she's like, I'm willing to pay, you know, 250 bucks or something like that. And she ended up giving me 300. But I remember it was like a one-off commission. I was like, I can do that. Because the param- I needed the money, you know, at the time I was in college, yeah. fresh, you know, undergrad in college, and I could do it. So I was like, I, I did it, you know. Mm-hmm. And no one ever knew I made that. It it hung up at a party. Who knows if it if it exists anymore? You you know, yeah. it's a very very specific thing. Um, so so the patron is someone, you know. So the commission is someone that it's like they typically are one off. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, even if you do several commissions, they're, they're, they're commissioned for, and they can be commissioned for permanence. It could be, I'm commissioning like, um, Kehinde Wiley's, uh, rumors of war was commissioned in a sense. What's interesting about that is I, what I love about that story is he was already making that piece in response to the monuments mm-hmm. and, uh, coming out of his time, having his large exhibition at the, the VMFA, yeah. but then some collectors and a curator, and uh, a patron um, were in the studio seeing a maquette of what he was doing and said, this has to be made full scale and it needs to live in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And so then that the artist vision collaborate, collaborating with the large scale solo exhibition, paying attention to the context and saying, I want to respond to this, this place, bringing it into incipient form gave other people his vision to say, we need to make this realized. And patrons of the arts who give large financial support or even small financial support um, to maybe, maybe it's to institutions that are better able to navigate the specifics of where that money goes, or, you know, could look a lot of different ways, but help to bring about a pretty significant work of art. Right. Um, I mean, incredible timing. Yeah, uh, incredible timing. Yeah, hindsight is like, wow. But um, yeah, I guess I'm just trying to think like, so your your patrons are people, I think, that, that their support, 
is wedded to a larger vision, mm. the same way I'm talking about artists needing to have that vision that supersedes and comes prior to any particular work of art. They patron the arts in general, and that can have direct impact on specific things. Does that make Yeah. So I think that that's a, that's a helpful, helpful way of thinking about it. I think a lot of times patrons, um, and of course, it just use the same qualitative or levels of degree. You can have a one-time patron. You can have patron that patron a few people. You can have patrons that patron a lot of people. They're all patrons, and then, then there's a level of impact. So it's always helpful to think along these, these kind of meters, if you will, these scales. Uh, very helpful at solving the issue of like, well, how do you know if it's good? How do you know if I'm a patron? Well, did you support that? I did. Well, you patroned them. You know, uh, Are you an enduring patron or are you a one-time patron? All is good. It's just w- where are you at? And so those are just helpful categories to think about, like what a patron is. And a lot of times the most substantial patrons are the ones that have a vision. They barter. They you know, think of our documentary as great pictures of uh, collectors that patron the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a lot of ways, um, uh, everybody that supports the arts, galleries, writers, they all kind of patron the art. They all are supporting in some kind of way. Um, and then... Uh, what was the other? We had clients, patrons, donors, donors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, donors are patrons, and I guess one of the things that maybe comes to mind is sometimes with donors there are conditions. Mm. Yeah, on the um, the willingness to give some money. There's like there's a mutual benefit mm-hmm. that is somehow oftentimes understandably embedded in that that interaction it could come from a foundation right foundation gets tax breaks or the name of the family is continued to be carried forward in tandem with the work that's being made or the name of the the donor themselves or and so there's some personal sort of correspondence with or or enjoining with mm-hmm. uh, those that are donors you know and oftentimes it has to do with the name or the legacy you know, big vision legacy. Um, you know, like you think about galleries in museums that are named after large patron collectors that then become donors, and now their name lives as synonymous with that collection and those artists. They, they've, they've been joined together in the mutual support of that cultural milieu. And so um, I often think of like big level donors as having a very large impact on institution making and um, and, you know, donors in that sense aren't always sustaining the artist. Um, I mean, sometimes that kind of work is legacy driven. So like mm-hmm. you don't always feel the weight of a donor's support as a maker unless you're subsumed into some larger matrix where you're several years in or you're not even alive anymore. And then that work is when they've passed is in that gallery space. But of course, there's also donors that are working right this second that you're receiving immediate benefits from, you know what I mean? We've, we've received some donor support, um, to smaller scales and it's significant. It means, it means so much. So it, with all of these, it's so complex and, and nuanced. Um, yeah, and it feels like, uh, as, as all this is kind of, kind of being laid on the table, what I'm, what I'm starting to see is almost, uh, a, a spectrum that is delineated by the individual's, uh, proximity to the work. Mm-hmm. So you have a patron who might just be very excited about the arts in general. They'd like to give money. They love the fact that this is a part of their community and the world they live in. Uh, the donor 
has a bit more proximity to it because they're like, yes, but but I may have some specifications on the type of work that's right that I'm wanting to see or the the areas in which it's it's shown. Um, then you move into collector who says, oh, I like the work of this specific person or these specific. Yeah, people, I only collect I this that. kind of art, or I only, you know, and and they could be as idiosyncratic as each individual. So, I mean, it's right. kind of awesome. It's like, it could be anything, you know, mm-hmm. I only collect turtle paintings. Yeah. And, and so the artists yeah. are irrelevant as long as the content is yeah. what they want. Or I only collect these kinds of artists mm-hmm. or I only, you know, so the, the, the variables are as myriad as the, the person. But then we get down to like commission and client. Yeah. And it, it, it's very much, I, I would like to be integral to what's going mm-hmm. on in this right. relationship. And so that's kind of the, when we're talking about that, that kind of fluidity of moving from one place mm-hmm. to another and how you could have someone who's a client and a patron at different moments or even at the same time yeah, uh, in specific spaces. Um, you know, th- I think this is really helpful for me to start to just understand like what are the actual types of opportunities that are there. Yeah. But also I think the, one of the, one of the big things I think we should kind of rest on in the, the last bit of this is you, you mentioned vision mm-hmm. a lot, right? The, the vision mm-hmm. of the artist, the vision of the patron or mm-hmm. donor, the vision of the client. Um, and that kind of, w- your personal your personal point uh, that you're making in your work or your personal viewpoint or whatever uh, is is always kind of secondary if the vision is good and in place if there's yeah. some idea of this yeah. being something more and so it it seems that um, whereas like maybe the questions sort of ask us to say like hey how how do I how do I make sure that I'm still being able to you know communicate my personal vision mm-hmm. it might be well, that can always be the case as long as kind of vision is there. Yeah, I think the overall. personal. I think um, I think personal vision can. Um, what I'd like to say is personal vision is overplayed as an idea, especially when it's left undefined. So, yeah, yeah. so there's a lot of a minute difference between a standard watercolor up, you know, this artist might make, let's say, and then one that has specific sort of information expressed in a way that is more, more tightly idiosyncratic to the maker. Well, the stuff that's more broad and seems a little more generic in, in reference to that more specific largely is still similar because the hand of the maker is the same. Right. And the personal yeah. voice comes through the, kind of like the psyche in in tandem in communication with the hand. Like I always tell people like, um, especially with more analog hand drawn, you're, you know, painting, your hand can only be changed so much. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is like you're, like I, I have my students like sometimes the first day of class, I haven't done this in a while, but write their signature 30 times and then we, in a row, just handwrite it and then how we hide it for a minute and we do contour drawing. And then we have prompts for, I have them do like a five foot contour drawing blind, trying to make as many different curves and angles as they can just intuitively um, thinking or also then in response to like a backpack. So like two different. And so these different stimuli and what happens is we take those and then we put the signatures up and the way they make curves, the way they are almost the same to a T, the hand just shows up. And then it's interesting to stash that away 
and see how no matter how much more developed a person gets, their essential hand is still in it. Mm. And so that essential hand is, is very hard to get rid of. But why would you want to? That's your personal sort of at the level of physicality. That's that's a supportive outflow of your personal voice. And it's not everything. It's not conceptual. Mm-hmm. It's not, um, you know, aesthetic per se in the capital A aesthetic. It is aesthetic, but not capital A aesthetic. So um, you can't get away from that. So that by itself is going to carry a certain amount of impression on uh, your average looker um, who is not going to differentiate it to the, to the level that you're making the distinction. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like uh, you, you could almost make the argument that it's kind of a moot point. That's right? what because I'm saying. As long as you're still making the work, if you are not yes. just phoning it in or just like slacking off with mm-hmm. it, like your personal touch is always there literally. Yeah. Um, and you can't get away from it. Um, so I, what I like the, to call this piece personal touch. <laughs> That was just for Gareth. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so I think you know like it's 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 a huge point though because like we've all had so many students that you know I mean I've had students that have come to me and they've said hey I've got this opportunity but I'm gonna have to do you know what they want me to do so I'm just yeah. not gonna do it because yeah. I don't get to have my personal voice yeah and I'm just like no 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 like let's do this yeah hey, here, here's the word is a, this is a thought okay so you make some work and you made it. Mm-hmm. And you can't show it, and then somebody says, "Okay, I want to show that work." Well, guess what? They're showing it. They're they're still telling you what to do. Yeah, they're they're just the one that finally agreed with what you did. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's margins to that. Like, um, there's value in going through working with people and being a human being and talking to people and like also like. Uh, opportunities tend to kick off other opportunities. That's one thing that I, I know for sure. I think that's a huge point. And so when I'm looking at like, listen, if someone wants to hang 40 of my paintings somewhere permanently, I'm saying yes to it. If it, because, because it's a highly unique, not very common opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to do my best within the parameters they've given me. Like I myself would say yes to that. Um, Cause I'm guessing if anybody ever approached me, it would, they would largely be saying, can you make abstract work? They may say, "Hey, I'd like the colors to be a yeah. little more." They wouldn't be going for something out of left field. No, so so I, I, you know, so even if I can't do it to the level that I'm making certain work in my home right the second in my studio, I'm going to say yes to that because they're investing in they're they're committing long term investment, which means this has the ability to live and complement to everything else that I'm doing. Right, but also it's in a meaningful. This is the problem with just being sort of self directed. It's like. But also, it's a powerful statement about people that want to patron the arts in general. Mm-hmm. I don't want to discourage that because I want to be able to talk about that. And I want them to talk to other people so that somebody else goes, we'd love to commission someone else, somewhere else, to do something similar in our location. Like, there is the selfish part or the self-directed part. But more importantly, there's the outward implications. Mm-hmm. And so big vision frees those debates up. Because you're seeing the um, iterative possibility and the manifold implications. And when people talk about, well, there's not enough patrons in the arts, and then you get a patron or a supporter, and then you're like, but I don't want it. Yeah. You got, and I'm not saying this is our, we're just talking hypothetically here. I'm not, we're not saying that our artist is saying that because I don't think that they are at all. No. But it's just like these kinds of thoughts are in there 
these conflicts are there and a lot of them are art school conflicts that can that don't have to be there you yeah know? and i think you know uh you know speaking of that the one of the things that uh seems to be somewhat kind of implicit in the conversations and questions like this um is almost like uh people asking like how much voice do i have in that conversation anyway because even if somebody comes mm-hmm. to me and says we want 10 to 40 paintings like this mm-hmm. like they're not being dictatorial necessarily no at times you might find that person i yeah. mean i've had those clients that have been like yeah. doing this this and this and but you yeah, always I got to talk to you later about what you're not doing right with some stuff I have you doing. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, uh, you know, uh, most of the relationships though, like people are understanding that like they say something, especially yep. if they're not within an art context and don't understand what's going totally. on, they're going to say something. And the expectation is that there's probably some level of conversation there. Yeah. Cause so you might say, Hey, yeah. So here's, here's the opportunity. I think that's great. But I'd, just like to say, hey, this is what my work is like. What about this work has made you think this? Mm-hmm. Because this is what I think. This is what I think. You're an active part of that. Yeah, you can if still have a conversation. Hand, making that stuff. Like, yeah. You, you like don't don't feel like they say, hey, hey, here's some money on the end of a fishing sure. pole. You got to jump this high to get it. That's yeah. not what's going on. Yep. But that's often what we hear. Yeah. So if I was like, so I can hear people kind of like try. So the, here's one thing: folks try to formulize a way to success. That's a problem. You might look for some indicatives, but don't make it a formula. So I can imagine some people listening who have no clients who've never shown are like, well, how do I? Uh, Well, don't put the cart before the horse for you. Continue to experiment, make your work. Some people are so locked into client-based work that are trying to get out. And it's like, yeah, you probably need to go ahead and not have any parameters for a while. Mm -hmm. So you can existentially just work out those muscles without any pressure from anybody else. Yes. So if we were in a mentoring situation, for me, the mentorship would be case by case, kind of like a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I teach, I have things I want to teach, but at like a physician, I'm administering according to the health and well-being and capacities of each individual. Yes. And I'm working alongside them according to like their care plan, if you will. And that, could, that, that means that I have to stay on top of things enough to be flexible with them. Um, you have to be a good listener. You have to be a good observer and you have to know the, um, the ends for which you can't go, you know, beyond and you gotta be okay with your own limitations, which I am. So like at some point, uh, it's my job to know others, know and be known. Mm -hmm. So I might be able to point someone to someone else who can better serve them according to their questions or their, their, their interests. But, um, so no matter who you are or where you are, there is a way in which you probably should grow, but you typically need to plant yourself where you're at and grow out of that and not necessarily expedite the process um, when you're not ready. You know, like I've just met a lot of people that are like, have made two paintings and they're like, I'm an artist now. I want to be an artist. And it's like, I think that's premature. Yeah. You're on your way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, just think it's premature. Like, like, um, why do you need a gallery audience to look at two paintings that are the first two you've ever made? Yeah. Do you, so already there's a, an, an ignorance to I typically what a gallery is and who's going to those, mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying? So what, what, so it's your responsibility to go, what am I looking for? Am I looking for affirmation? Am I looking for, uh, some like affirmation to say, yes, keep doing it. Like, is there other ways of actually getting that? from someone, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, but once you've made and it's generative, it starts to generate opportunity. You're really, you're really typically saying no to good things. 
mm-hmm. great. You're, you're, you're going to end up parsing out good opportunities. That is harder to do, which is why I say you got to have a vision. Yeah. And which is why I'm saying, you know, why we would go ahead and talk about at least hit at clients, you know, uh, um, uh, donors, patrons, and what, what, what collectors, collectors mm-hmm. um, because they are vision activators a little bit. They give you plot points to kind of factor into your field of vision and their specific doors mm-hmm. that sometimes lead into the same house. Um, but um, some clarity on those can give you some clarity on how encompassing your vision is. Are you someone who only wants to work for select collectors? Okay, well then let that be your vision. Mm-hmm. Hone in. Um, I'm not saying you should do that, but I'm. You, you see what I'm saying? So like, once you have a, a sense of, of those types of categories of audience, it allows you to make assessments of can I do this right now? What else is on my horizon? Um, maybe some sometimes it's a no now, but a yes later. You, you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, um, uh, but without that vision, if you're just myopically only making your work. Um, it's like picking your head up and getting hit by a truck. Like you're, you're just like not prepared what, for what can be there. Cause there's no forethought. Yeah. You got to have some forethought. Um, all right. So I guess kind of just to recap what we talked about today, um, there's a bunch of opportunities out there within creative space as an artist and designer, a lot of ways that we can really get into relationships with other folks, uh, whether they're clients, collectors, donors, patrons, uh, we talked about commissions as well. Um, within those space, it's, it's very different and it's not always about just how much personal voice do I get to retain because that's always a part of what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of what's happening. Uh, but it will have more to do with the vision of the, the vision you have and the vision that you're of the people you're working with and how much they may or may not align. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that within those opportunity spaces, those conversations are always conversations that you're able to kind of push back or add to or be a part of so that once we get the offer, it doesn't mean that we just get eviscerated in the process. Mm-hmm. We actually get to step into that process more mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, vie for ourselves and vouch for ourselves and, and make sure that the work as we are in service to the work is getting is going to be the best work it can be, mm-hmm. regardless of the relational aspect mm-hmm. from client to patron. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is a conversation that I think I have just uh, absorbed mm-hmm. over the last 15, 20 years, mm-hmm. more than I ever had it sort of just outlined for me mm-hmm. at a certain point. It's just things I've picked up mm-hmm. through countless conversations over two decades. Yeah. Yeah. And some lived experience where you, right. you kind of, uh, you, you, I, I couldn't help but think that we, we understand these things at an intuitive level a little bit if you've ever dressed up or down for an occasion. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's what you wear at home. There's what you wear to work. There's what you wear to dinner. There's what you wear to dinner when you're with someone for the first time that you're desiring to date or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the different tweaks, uh, cause us to put on a little bit of a different set of clothing according to that occasion. And in some ways as a maker, that's what you're doing a little bit. Yeah. And, and hopefully you just, those different clothes don't change who you are. That's exactly right. They're just, uh, um, they're aesthetic, enhancing mediatorial they mediate and clarify an uh an indirect understanding of i know where i'm at and i know who i'm talking to and, and, it shows and for what recognition reason. for the situation self-awareness right, right. so yeah. so in the same way i mean i think that's like the thing like you can be the person who's like i only wear sweatpants mm-hmm. and i and i and i'm savvy enough to work from home and i just love being in my sweats mm-hmm. that's seriously like that's great like 
or, you know, like, so I mean, we understand also what it can be to be like, I only, you know, I only wear suits. I only deal with blue chip galleries and I only deal with blue chip galleries that are conservative leaning, fine art driven. Mm -hmm. And I want this clientele. I mean, like that person can exist. And I say more power to you. A lot of us are somewhere in, 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 in the, you know, the working class zone in terms of being makers where we're like, every now and then I get invited to wear a suit. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of times where I just want to wear my, my sweatpants, but I also have to wear my work clothes. And I do like a good dinner every now and then. Yeah. And, you know, somewhere in there, I'm having to wear uh, uh, the thoughts of orienting myself towards a client, a commissioner, a patron, a collaborator, mm -hmm. you know, um, all of these things. And, and I'm still essentially me, but I'm just attuning myself if I'm good and uh, calibrating myself to the opportunities that are set before me as I negotiate those. They're not pitted against each other. The pitting against each other is prior to that. They're prior assumptions that are charged with historical baggage as people try to negotiate bourgeoisie society, high culture, and commonplace making. And, and a lot of those categories just don't need to apply that way anymore. We just don't need, they're not helpful. Right. Um, you're going to live, Lord willing, long enough to make some things that you feel less connected to and make mm -hmm. some things you felt more connected to. And to be quite honest, there's some things that I felt really connected to that I don't even know anymore who made that. And it was me that made it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is situational and your vision has got to be bigger than any of those things right. to, to, to endure and live a, with a sane mind, <laughs> you know, to, to, to not be tossed to and fro by everything mm -hmm. you do. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, this episode has been all about just kind of laying that groundwork so that we can get into the kind of deeper, more fine points of the question over the next yeah. uh, couple of discussions. Um, so, you know, this week's really been about those relational aspects within the uh, opportunities that are available to us. Um, and so, you know, as always, uh, thank you all so much for Send listening. Send your questions in. Yes, please do, because uh, these questions actually help us, as you can see from, you know, this episode and a lot of others. The questions spur us on to think about some of these larger yep. topics. So your questions are already, always appreciated. Uh, info at shockofwaterspace.com. Uh, please check us out. Uh, but in the meantime... Or Messenger Pigeon, Gareth. I mean, I yeah, we're trying to get the Shock of Speak Messenger Pigeon sent to Gareth's house, so... Well, and, and I don't want that coop just sitting there for I no know. reason. I'm tired of you not using it. So, I mean, it's just taking up Somebody space. help Gareth out. Yeah, send me a messenger pigeon. I uh, appreciate y'all. As always, we love you. Thanks for being a great audience, and we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Shaco Art Speak, a production of Shaco Art Space. We are an independent, nonprofit art gallery in Richmond, Virginia. We can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.